Welcome to iPodcast Magic Missile, where we play games and talk geek. Broadcasting every week from the New River Valley in the beautiful mountains of Southwest Virginia, we bring you audio from some of the most exciting games, new and old. No actual wizard spells here, just actual play from great games. This is iPodcast Magic Missile. And we're back! <laughs> the, um... That was also the, uh... He is also cheating. Or, uh... <laughs> that was the underground boxing tournament. Right, before the regular boxing tournament, uh, there was an underground boxing tournament, which I guess was inspired because all those boxers were in town. The uh, underground boxing tournament was mostly based on cheating. Actually, the regular boxing tournament was mostly based on cheating as well. We had you're welcome. All, we got all the party in on uh, participating because what happened is the boxer would go in there, and every other member of the party would make a skill roll to support them in some way, like a charisma roll to get the crowd cheering for their guy, a heel check to put their guy back together again, surreptitiously. Yeah, shooting into the other guy's eye, or you know, putting. Ben Gay in his in his jockstrap or something like that. It was that. difficult between rounds. <laughs> anyway, there was you know you could sabotage the other side, um, and they got to practice this a little bit in the underground boxing tournament, which was much more cheatier. I guess you know I had a bunch of boxing guys in town, so that must have been a thing that made sense to me to happen. But um, the party managed to you know the party was cheating their ass off, but they were they were hiding it well. Uh, the other guys. We're also cheating and hiding it well, but eventually the secret got out. I guess Bison must have seen something. We kept telling him, Bison, don't tell anyone what we're doing. But isn't this cheating? Yes, but it's okay. Just don't tell anyone we're cheating. Don't tell anyone that we're cheating. You know how we're cheating? Don't tell anyone that we're cheating. Okay. Bison, don't tell anyone... (laughs) Will is good for this. This is, of course, the same Will from the Apocalypse World campaign that you, handsome and elegant reader, are used to listening to every week. Again, reading a podcast. <laughs> I just can't noun this podcast right, can I? So the, um, it's actually a verb. Will has a tendency, of course, to throw monkey wrenches into his own works for hilarity. Something that 4th edition players just aren't used to doing. I mean, generally in 4th edition, people are, are very optimized, very focused on optimization, you know, perfect play type strategy it's a video game like it that you know just inspires that behavior in people so it was it was dear reader you can hear my hear me rolling my eyes it was obnoxious but also really beneficial to the campaign at large to add will because he did pull the rug out from under all the, the entire party so often just you know stick his head right in that closing uh water resistant bulkhead that cost me a daily the uh so not to become bison three limb <laughs> and this was kind of expressed by bison being a little bit shall we say dim-witted uh somewhat oblivious to what was going on around him just like the main character of one piece but i mean it's a big driver of the plot of one piece that luffy just sticks his head in a problem hole and says hey guys get me out and you know the rest of the party is like well luffy's going to go get himself into some trouble i guess we better go get him out again he has the keys <laughs> So, uh, that was why they went so out of their way. They were like, Bison. And by Bison, I mean Will. The player Will. Who I am within melee range of. (laughs) And have already been looking for an excuse to hurt. Do not out us for cheating. We're in a room full of guys with two or more facial scars. (laughs) There is a foot of, you know... Opaque cigar smoke at the ceiling. This is exactly the kind of situation where five people do not want to start a fight with 55 people. And uh, he was good. He managed to not out them until they, he caught the other guy cheating. And he said, hey, he is also cheating. <laughs> at which point I think they picked up the ring and threw it at you. <laughs> there was, it was an interesting uh, mob mechanic. We just considered every th- uh, square to be difficult, threatened terrain. Yeah. Just attacks of opportunity coming out of the air. The air which, of course, was filled with punching guys. The, um... A little while after that, we got to the point... Oh, right. It was actually right after that, wasn't it? Where, um... Everybody had these backup characters. I guess you started this trend. Everyone was making these backup characters. Always have a backup. 
They can characters in I have D&D. a backup for my goblin in a campaign that hasn't started and won't for two weeks. Uh, making D&D characters is fun. You know? And, like, you know, Heiko always likes to have backups. So as long as you do it right, read my blog. Everybody had a number of characters in waiting uh, that they wanted to use. Uh, and we were also, at that time, we were adding your wife, because James had pretty much dropped out. Duncan, Duncan, yeah, Duncan dropped yeah, out at the same, same time, time, right? Because he, because yep. he, James and Warren all died in the same fight. Spoilers. Um, how is that a spoiler for later in this story? Oh, uh, no, I think it's now. I think, I think we're there. Oh, okay. The um, <clears throat> so uh, we we're like, man. So, so I thought, you know, with all these great characters and people, you know, everybody designed their characters, so they kept talking about them. They really wanted to use them. We got to this idea of, hey, what if? Because, you know, the, the crew in One Piece is nine people. Well, we're obviously not going to have a nine-player D&D party, even if I could find nine people to be in my campaign. Tail's just not big enough. Yeah, it just doesn't work that way. You can't do that. But what if you had the same player control two characters? And that way you could have twice as many characters in the pirate crew as you had players, um, and everybody could, you know, use all their fun characters. It would basically be like, everyone can have twice as much fun. You or, can send a whole bunch, keep a whole bunch of people on the boat and just form an away team where each person has a character. You could split the party and go on two arcs at once. Which is actually a thing that happens a lot in the show. And you can mix and match. You don't have to have party A and party one. You can say, well, okay, let's, my, my, these two characters are going to switch. It means sometimes this party doesn't have a healer. That's just funnier. Arguably, this is when this campaign actually got good, like real good, because the best thing about the eight-man, four-player dynamic, and I shouldn't say eight-man, because we actually had excellent gender parity, much better than uh, the actual One Piece crew. In fact, did we have four girls and four guys? It was 50% until we got our ninth and tenth character, and then it was still 40%. Yeah. Yeah, so it was 50-50 because Will played two boys and Dave played two girls and the High Cove as I do played a boy and a girl each as we do in real life. The um we also had 50% fruit users and 50% not fruit users. We call them fruisers. Well, I call them fruisers. Yeah. It's really it, just one piece power comes from magic fruit and the the well, just like the real world organics. The um uh the crew in the comic has uh it's real close. They have four, four. They have four fruit users, four non-fruit users, and Frankie. Uh, the um, the important thing about fruit users is that they cannot swim at all ever. It's like water is kryptonite to them. Just touching it renders them usually paralyzed, unable to use their superpowers. So it was just, a good idea to have a party with some people who did that and some people who didn't. This actually came in. This is another reskinning handy thing because we did water. We decided would do damage. I mean, like, you know, obviously just touching water is going to do damage, like lava does fire damage. But if you got hit by water, or if you were a fruit user and were therefore taking damage from some water-based thing, we needed a type for it. And One Piece doesn't have a whole lot of force fields, but it does have all this water-based damage How happening. How does it? Spoilers. So we, we, we made water damage be force type. And this was super handy because in 4th edition, a lot of stuff uh, that is meant to bypass resistances like damage resistances is force type in the world of one piece many people who have damage resistance have damage resistance because of a fruit power which is explicitly bypassed by hitting them with water so that actually was one of the things about the reskin that worked really nicely but anyway eventually what a eventually yeah we 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 figured it out after the beginning of the campaign one of the um but yeah we figured out for schooner I feel like that story bears telling because it's hilarious as balls, but everyone else tells me Go that ahead. this character was terrible. It was. Go I introduced ahead. a character named Captain Schooner who had the sweat sweat fruit power, allowing him to sweat in a projectile manner such that he could rocket around in the air or blow his enemies away with waves of... It's uh, like that commercial where the guy... It's for some kind of antipersonal yeah, plan. Yeah, where he's shooting jets of water out of his armpits. Yeah. And it's exactly how it worked. We were all sitting at the table going... Yeah. That was pretty gross. That was pretty gross. Oh, he hit me. <laughs> oh, it's unavoidable. It's a status effect. Yeah. He had a couple blasts, bursts. So, so yeah, uh, what we were talking about before is one of, the, one of the things that made the campaign get really good when we added the... Hmm? 
one of the things that the new dynamic with having all these players was we or having all these characters is they had all these different personality interactions and it would be like oh so and so likes so and so but doesn't like so and so. Dave's secondary character after Ophelia he had uh, Amy who was a Texas cowgirl sniper and a bit of a hothead. Yeah. Uh, ended up in a rivalry with Heiko's backup character. Well, I guess not backup character. His new main that character, new Tomiko. Main character. Yeah. Who was also a female combat-heavy hothead. Yep. Although she was definitely more the blue Oni to Amy's red Oni. Which is terrifying, because she was the red Oni to my uh, original character's blue Oni. <laughs> it's true. Uh, but we, she was the other character who could drop 200 damage on someone in a round. That's true. But, and it was, it was just a ton of fun throwing them together because, you know, they'd be all, like, snarking at each other and then at, towards the end of the campaign have, like, you know, a great bonding moment. It was one of those truly great rivalries where we were alike in the ways that made us hate each other but different in the ways that gave it fuel. So we were both, you know... Damage dealers, but one was ranged and one was close. But we were also both very nimble, but one of it did it with martial arts powers and one of them did it with science. Uh, another good interaction was uh, Laura, uh, Heiko's wife, joined the campaign. Uh, at the same time, we added the second party. So she actually came in with two characters. A couple of sessions apart. Were they a couple? I think yeah, they were one Klusk, session apart. No, Klusk was one, came in at least one or two sessions before. Um, we had to escape from Sandal. Yeah, and when you were escaping from Sandal Island was when you met the second party. We met the second party on Seabump. Party on Seabump, which was the island after Sandal. This, a week passed between sessions. Okay, well, I'm not going to argue with you about it anymore. <laughs> they were different arcs. Wikipedia will back me up. Fair enough, but uh, yeah. So Klesk was like the youngest member of the party. I think Klesk was supposed to be 14. He was a uh, boy that transformed into a griffin because Laura super loves griffins. Let me tell you what. But um, she also, even more than griffins. Loves slave pit fighting. I don't think that she does. Then why did she make a griffin slave pit fighter? Quid pro quo. That's not what that means. It is now. Anyway. Suddenly you're a Latino. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so yeah, Laura's primary character, Klesk, which joined the party at that time, ended up having a really cool relationship with Dave's primary character, Ophelia. Ophelia, who had lost a younger brother that would have been about Klesk's age. Or no, maybe it would have been much a little older. Bit, a little, a few years older than that, probably. Okay. But the point is, Ophelia was very motherly, and uh, like a big, a big part of her character arc was her coming to terms with her brother's, you know, her, her younger brother's death. So, like Klesk, on the other hand, needed mothering like badly. Yeah, his was, whole gimmick was fighting alone. Yeah. So they had a really good mechanic where Klesk would be like, I don't understand what's going on. And, you know, Ophelia would, like, try to be protective of him and, and nurturing of him. But then, you know, sometimes they had to turn him loose and kick some ass. Were there any, were there any good, other good ones that worked there? Direct interactions? Yeah. I think Jay didn't like when Ophelia set alcohol on fire. <laughs> oh. Jay started Tom out... Tom had an interesting interaction with every female member of the party. Yes. But... When we describe those characters. Well, we, I think that's where we are now. So okay. Katara had... Oh, right. Katara, I guess Katara kind of had a thing with Jay, because she was super uptight, and like everything needs to be neat and nice, and Jay... I thought she was better than everyone else. Katara was a, 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 fish per, a, fish, a fishman princess. Yeah. Or noble woman. Katara fell into a very convenient portion of the campaign, where our captain had died. And a couple of people looked at it, and looked at who should be captain now. Well, we looked at Ophelia and said, Ophelia is the longest-lasting member of this party and the most level-headed. She would make a good captain. But Tomiko is the most close to our original captain and wants to be captain. But Katara also wants to be captain. Mostly just out of self-importance. But Bison is the best fighter, and that makes you captain in the world of One Piece. Four characters... Each with a different player. Wanting to be the captain somehow. Or in, in some way angling for it, yeah. however unintentionally. I remember you had a really great way of describing uh, the difference between Warren and Tomiko's yeah. atti attitude on the captain's Warren, Warren, I wanted to play the leader of the party as somebody who didn't boss anybody around. Somebody who helped other people do things. You know, like a good boss. not right. A manager, not a boss. Mm -hmm. A leader, not a... Boss. Tyrant. Yeah. So that, however, manifested as generally not having an opinion. Just, well, let's put it up to a vote. It's like, well, then why do we even have a leader? 
Tomiko, however, was all about being in charge until things got hard. Then it was a democracy. So Warren actually wanted the responsibility of being the leader, but none of the power. Whereas Tomiko wanted all the power of being a leader, but none of the responsibility. Once we brought uh, Warren back to life, which was actually when the campaign ended, it would have been uh, kind of neat to uh, have the have the two of the two characters now the married couple play the dual captaincy. Warren for the responsibility, and Tomiko for the bossing around. <laughs> Things are getting hard. Tag in. <laughs> The, did you have something to say? Oh, no, or you could just have Luffy be the captain. Right. Yeah. Well, yeah, we ended up kind of settling upon Bison. Yeah. Um, I wanted Heiko to be the captain because I felt like of all the players we had, because, you know, the original lineup was a, a weird combination of players. And I thought that of, of these players, I, I know that Heiko is the one who will definitely, definitely not abuse being put in a position of character power over the other characters. And that's why I wanted you to be the captain. I know that you did not want it. You he worked was, it into your character. He was too right. Yeah, I was. Therein squats the toad. Which brings us to Tom. Hyun Tai uh, Tom. I think it was Tom Hyun Tai. Okay, when you, told me, when you told it to me, it was Hyun Tai. People kept calling him whichever name didn't make sense. Right. He was a ninja, sort of. He was dressed uh, like a ninja. His backstory was only vaguely explained because he didn't have much of a backstory. His gimmick was, yeah, I shuffle around from pirate crew to pirate crew. I don't have an Akama. My job is to be support. I'm the navigator. However, one reason I don't have an Akama is because I already have an Akama. Tom's power was the 9-9 fruit, mm-hmm. where he would, at apparently random intervals, change personalities from the base person he was to one of the nine spirits that inhabited his head based on the pantheon I wrote in college. This is a D&D pantheon, so it's based on the nine alignments of third edition. So after a fight, I would just roll a d10, and today I'm chaotic evil. And that was a lot of fun, playing ten personalities. That, you know, go between them. The combat always knocked you back into personality uh, zero. So that I could manifest them all as a spirit. Right. Well, but that was... powers involved sending each individual spirit out and doing something to somebody. Each personality had different interactions with the party. Like, nobody liked the green one because that was the torturer and the intimidator. He came in useful at least once, though. I rolled a two. I remember coming in for real useful at least once. I think the least favorite, however, was the chaotic evil one. I would always uh, specify by rolling a die, looking at it, confirming that it was in fact four, just looking at Dave and going, Ladies. Yeah, the super amorous personality that was always trying to uh, hit on all the female members of the party. But not the charming amorous. Like the... Sketchy amorous. The top four buttons undone to show off the medallion amorous. uh, I think Ophelia went out of her way to get into fights when that guy was around... Knowing it would kick me into another personality. She didn't bop you with her staff a couple of times. I remember the, uh, the super fast talky one, too. That one was fun. That one was super excitable. He thought everybody, everything was interesting and everybody was interesting because he was incredibly curious. And it would be great if we could investigate what everybody's fruit power did because everybody's fruit power has these weird interactions. I wonder what could actually beat somebody who turns into a griffin. What does a griffin weak against? Is it rocks? I bet a griffin's weak against rocks. Anyway, the, uh, what was another one? Uh, the, Rock the geographical feature, not the giant bird. Because, of course, you know, a griffin would be weak against a giant bird because a griffin is just a smaller bird. But it's also part lion. Do lions eat birds? I know lions are a type of cat and cats eat birds, but only if they can catch them. Who was the, uh, who was Orange? Why do I remember Orange as being a woman? Because Orange was a woman. Okay. What was the point of that one? Miss Andre. Oh. <laughs> There you go. Well, then. <laughs> that might be why. <laughs> we, um, what did we do with the, so, so let's see here now. What was, what was the next point with that? Oh, right. I suppose the next funny thing that happened after the uh, expansion to eight players. We're missing a party member. Jay. Jay. Well, he was the one that, inter- I mentioned him. He interacted with, oh, but well, we should probably describe him, though. Jay's theme was hobo. Yeah. He was a hobo with cardboard armor and a shaking knife. <laughs> and a drinking problem in that I'm not drinking right now. <laughs> for some reason, he was a prospector. The, the chain was for fighting. The knife was a talking knife. Oh, right. This is my talking knife. <laughs> Diplomacy. It didn't work. <laughs> Bluff. 
Yeah, was better. Jay was eventually cured of his drinking habit and became the most interesting man in the world. Yeah, that was the best part, because the big thing about Jay was his big, bushy beard. He had a big, bushy, white beard, you know, as a hobo, and a pot on his head. <laughs> yep. For obvious reasons. Uh, but then, uh, once he once he got sober, uh, he suddenly became a parody of the most interesting man in the world. You know, I think that ad campaign might have started during the One Piece campaign. Nope. Really? Yep. Hmm. I'll take your word for it. It You're- started in, like, the 40s. You're better at time than me when you tell the truth, which isn't often. The um, is that everybody? Classic guitar. That was everyone. Jay, Jay was, and Bison. Jay was one of the examples of yeah, we'll reskin, but sometimes we'll just throw stuff out the window. We're going to give Jay resistance to poison because his alcohol, his blood is mostly alcohol. Yeah. We're also going to give him vulnerability to fire because <laughs> his blood is mostly alcohol. That's true. That was the, uh, the campaign was was uh, was well ripened at that point, and I felt more comfortable making just like caveats like that. And I figured giving, it was awesome. And also, I think his vulnerability was like more than his resistance. It was like resist five, vulnerable ten. So you know, it was pretty. Yeah. It was definitely it, it a drawback. He wasn't an unbalanced character. No, so, of course. If you put five drawbacks on the table and tell Will to pick one, he'll be like, "I can only have one." He was. Oh, Jay was the grabby. Fighter. Oh yeah, yeah. yeah he think. was real good at sticking. I forget what people. race that his thing was, but yeah, that that was he was a dwarf. He was a dwarf. Oh, perfect. He was slow and hard to knock down. <laughs> I, I had no idea he was a dwarf. Drunken master fighting. <laughs> okay, well this time. <laughs> uh, it, it was so that he would be hard to pull. Oh, remember that time he like lifted an entire boat out of the water and hit another boat with it? We did some <laughs> naval combat. Rules for this don't exist, or if they do, they're trash, because this is D20, and that's what naval combat is in D20. Trash. So They've tried it so many times. And they've never got it right. No. Neither have you, but you got it more right than they did. Oh, thanks. Uh, so one thing we uh, looked at was, these individual people have to matter in naval combat. You can't just fight with cannons, because that's not very one PC. And you also just can't have the driver, like the pilot of the ship, be the only person that matters, because, you know, that leaves the other three players or four players out. So we ended up saying, okay, we have combat range and we have naval combat range. Much like first edition, where you had interior and exterior ranges for spells that were different. Mm -hmm. And in this one, everything is still measured in squares, but those squares are much bigger. So if you have a range attack that goes five squares, well now it goes five naval combat squares. So it doesn't, you know, go for a quarter of a square and peter out. I think one of those squares, I think one naval combat square was 50... Squares. It might it was, was either ten. Was it ten? I think so. It was ten squares, which was fifty feet. Yeah, that's yeah, what okay, I that makes sense. Because we had little boat minis. I got out. I broke out my uh, little assemblable boat miniatures from uh, Pirates of the Spanish Main, an old wizards, uh, an old whiz kits game. So sometimes it mattered. Uh, Amy's sniping was phenomenal. Because good because it didn't limit her to three squares. So also, she could just sit in the crow's nest and knock out every crow on the opponent's nest. Also, you could use the uh, you could use the cannons it, like you use a cannon as a weapon with your own like weapon using powers. That was one of the more fun things. And Canada is either a melee with a range of yeah. three or a range with a range of your normal range. So or right. a range of ten. The ten. cannon was a weapon with range ten melee and range two. Range oh, 10 yeah. range and range 2 melee. Yeah. You had to get right up on somebody to use a melee power. Where Jay got interesting was that he was a grabby fighter. Well, people in One Piece are narratively strong. So it was not out of the realm of possibility for him to reach out, grab an enemy boat, and arrest its momentum. At, at least we tied it to this boat so they had to drag it around. Where it got weird was the time he decided, I'm tired of this boat. So he used his throw power, which is take a guy and move him six squares. Well, this one was take a boat and move him six squares. Well, three of those squares were land. (laughs) (laughs) Just threw that schooner 150 feet inland and was like, now chase us, you assholes. I remember Will feeling bad about that afterward. And nobody else no feeling bad reason. about it. Yeah, no, we, were, we like, were right. That was <laughs> flailingly awesome. We're not going to do that every naval combat. We're going to do that now because it's funny, like Roger Rabbit. Sometimes, however, I remember sometimes we would actually mix the systems and it, and it didn't make a whole lot of sense. We used naval combat for you guys to have to deal with a sea monster one time. And Tomiko Ooh. jumped off the boat in order to grapple the sea monster. And then Dempsey rolled him in the back of the head. Funny thing about 4th edition... If you go prone, you immediately fall to Earth at faster than terminal velocity. Narrative velocity. This is just how it's written. They don't explain what happens when you go prone while swimming, but they do suggest maybe you should drop to the bottom of the ocean we're just saying. 
So, in theory, as long as I was on that monster's head, I could keep it pinned at the Mariana Trench. What's it going to do? Eat me? I'm on the back of its head. It was it was pretty... Uh, it was a lot of fun. I, I, those naval segments were infrequent, but very enjoyable. I believe that fight it's ended, and correct me if I'm wrong, with Ophelia draining the entire sea monster of blood, inflating like a balloon, and then launching the ship on a jet of sea monster blood into sea bump. I'm going to allow this. Yeah, I do remember the... I do remember... That was the thing that happened. So there we go. Now we had a fight between Klesk and Katara. So ha 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 ha. I remember when you guys hit Sea bump you, you definitely hit it at speed. Yep. Because you ended up airborne and, like, crashing... Oh, right, that's what You guys went down the hole in the middle. Yep. <laughs> this island was a big bump in the ocean with a hole in the top. It's basically an anthill of water. And, yeah, the water went, water went up the hole, but only up the sides of the hole. This is actually a totally reasonable uh, thing in One Piece, no matter what physics has to say. Because One Piece has a very loose definition of reasonability. Uh, water went up the sides of that hole and then poured down the outside. So if you, if you rolled up on it, it looked like just a big bump in the sea, hence the island named Sea Bump. And, uh, oh, I just got it. Right. When they uh, got to the bottom of that hole, there was actually a little village in there. I remember you guys got the ship fitted for uh, submarine travel. Another thing that happens in One Piece. You could just make a regular ship sail underwater. We got this shortly after the manga described how you actually do that. Yeah, that, that was one of the things about this campaign because the, the manga is still ongoing. And it was actually a big constraint on the campaign, the canon of the manga. I wanted to make sure that it was like very honest to the canon of the manga. Or I'd shoot him. Well... I, you know, that's the thing I care about, too. You didn't need to threaten me. Not as much as your own health. Anyway, the, uh... Waiting for Oda to explain things he had foreshadowed was a major element of the campaign's choices for timing. And by choices for timing, I mean stalling. The, uh... So, like, for example, as soon as he explained how that, you know, submarine boat travel worked, boom, the party could do it. And I was super happy to be able to do that. We were so bad at it. Yeah. Yeah, I remember when the guys first did it, you were like, ah, make a nautical check. Clatter, clatter, clatter. Boat turns 90 degrees and goes straight down into the water. Pretty sure it went backward. (laughs) Embedding itself... The water was only 30 feet deep, so it actually embedded itself halfway down in the sand. We want to talk about the ninth and 10th party members? Well, this is the thing that, in, that I get... Because Oda just is great like this. He introduced a, a race of people in One Piece with two sets of elbows. They're called the Long Arm Tribe. And they just, you know, where your normal wrists would be, they have another pair of elbows and then another pair of forearms, and then uh, that's where their hands are. So we had a monk join the party. And this was actually not reskinned. He was a, a D&D monk, and he was a One Piece-like kung fu fighter. Long Arm... Sloth combat style. You may not think of sloths as having much of a combat style. That's because you never fought a sloth. Or actually know about them. It could be because you actually know about sloths. But the point is, they're terrifying as long as they're monks. Yeah. Um, this is a guy that joined after we did the two party thing, or the two character thing, so he joined with two characters at the same time. This other character, that, so that was uh, Vlaka, right? The other character was Oziak, or Oziak. It depends on who did the translation this week. Right. Um, Who's your scanlator? Irish terrorist sticky guy. <laughs> Glue-based terrorism. He, I remember he had, he had like, skills with making bombs, though. That was definitely a thing that Oziak had. And the mini, we, had, we never did get a mini for him. I used, like, a Heroclix mini, which was just, like, a burglar with a sock cap and a crowbar. <laughs> we didn't end up getting a picture for him, either. Everyone else got a custom portrait. Oziak's was Paste Pot Pete. <laughs> the, uh, I had a lot of fun. And later, the Trapster. I'm not sure he was Irish. I think he was Irish on paper, but his accent changed based on whatever media we had most recently consumed. Yeah, he, he definitely. But uh, um, they, and for a while he was Foghorn Leghorn. You said no, that was Vlaka. Vlaka was yes, well, right, Vlaka was Foghorn Leghorn. Vlaka's another one of those characters. I say, I say. Uh, <laughs> joined the campaign and saw everybody doing their funny accents. Uh, you know, Amy with her deep Southern fried Texas <laughs> accent. Uh, Bison with his hilarious. Uh, Russian accent, Jay with his crazy drunk hobo accent. Hako sometimes talking like he's on late night radio. But the, um, so I guess he figured that, you know, when in Rome, I need to come up with some accents. But just like, yeah. Wasn't terribly good at it. 
So the um, the accents ended up being a bit of a a bit of a burden. Locke is another one of those names that would be different based on the scan later because I'm yeah. certain there's that no way to render that name in any way in Japanese. No, we looked it's at it with like Vlaka, Brock. His name is Brock. Yeah, <laughs> that must be it. Yeah, <laughs> four syllables, five letters. <laughs> Brock. Which ended up working out nicely. Anyway, so he was kind of fun. He would spin around with his long arms. And like with four syllables, five syllables. Kuresiku. Ozayak was a... What is that? A seeker? seeker. Yeah, he was a seeker. He was a seeker. One of the like red-headed stepchild classes of uh, like Force Edition. Gloves like seeker. I'm not saying there's anything wrong with seeker, but it was a non-psionic class introduced in PHP 3. Right? Which meant it by definition had the least support of any class. Because the book it came out in only supported every class besides it and Rune Priest. If you've ever watched the show, his fighting style was something like number twos. Run away and, like, glop you. Yeah. Possibly build a shell of hard... Yeah, he had a move. That's Mr. Three. He had a Mr. Move, three, rather. Yeah, he had a move sorry. named Igloo. <laughs> his move was a lot like cross-dressing. Like, no, no. <laughs> yeah, he had a move named Igloo where he... Um, Made an igloo out of glue. <laughs> His gimmick was crippling inability to perform a single action. Oh, right. He was a masterful sniper by accident. He would shoot at a wall that would then dissolve, dropping an entire, I don't know, platoon of pigs onto the marines that were chasing us and their tanks. Weak against pigs. And he would go, dang it, I was aiming for the general. Dang it, e- I was aiming sing- for the general? Like, that's what he sounded like. He was doing John... Underwater? Lennon. <laughs> he was doing John Lennon when he was trying to do the accent for Oziak. Because I know that Oziak was, was Irish. Because this, of the so he might as well have named every crit critical miss. The, yeah. other, the other feature of Oziak's fighting style was that he would attempt to get as far away as possible because he had near infinite range and, and he was, never got hurt. And he was sticky. He would like climb to the yep. top of trees. He would walk up a wall. Yep. Yeah. Being 21 squares away was too far. Being 19 squares was too close. This was a thing Amy could do. But Amy spent the first six rounds of combat in melee. Yep. Because she was crazy. And it was just more fun that way. Yes. Like, F was a little bit too force so conditioning. Flank. He played in encounters mostly. So You, you know, know what? Being a controller is harder, too. Yeah. 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 You don't have that sudden escalation, now I'll do 40 damage around. No, you go all the way up to 6 damage around, but instead of slowing, you immobilize. He also did the, um, <clears throat> he had that move, face sinkhole. Oh! Yeah, glue pot. He had, like, make a, make a, make a patch of glue, but it was, uh... It was a reskin of Faye Sinkhole, and I remember Faye Sinkhole. Faye Sinkhole is one of those moves that can single-handedly ruin a Delve Knight. That was Oziak's escalation. When things were bad, Faye Sinkhole. Remind us one day to tell that uh, when we're doing some Delve Knight stories, because there's like probably a dozen story times just out of Delve Knight stories. Oh, story times. I'm thinking there's probably a dozen stories. I'm like, no frick. No, there's a dozen, a dozen story times of... of, of because uh, Delve Knight is just loaded with hilarity, but I remember that Faye Sinkhole... Somebody... In fact, you know what it was? <laughs> Dropped face sinkhole in the fight with the uh, all three of the machine tro- top brass at the same time. <laughs> I wasn't there that week. Yeah. It's a good thing. Yeah, I'm pretty sure if the next can round be killed by hit point damage. I'm pretty sure the next round. That's yeah. it in the story. The next round, the one that wasn't stuck came and just just basically punched him into oh, a bloody pulp. <laughs> it was so goddamn satisfying too. <laughs> it was like, oh no, the two guys started whip. Boom! <laughs> and just took him out. He's like, I will not suffer that fucking face. And you know what else? The face sinkhole sticks around. He being unconscious prevents him from using the free action that it takes to suck a guy back into it. But as soon as he woke up, that sinkhole was still active. That is a daily from PHV3. Anyway. Anyway. The, um, long story short. Yeah. Well, long, long story, story short. Too, ah, too late. <laughs> so that was the full ten-man party when, when we added Vlaka and... Uh, and uh, Oziak. Uh, and that was when... I feel like one of the best arcs, uh, despite the puzzles in that campaign, was uh, Yomiki Island. Uh, what had happened was because a bunch of characters had died when we did like the character changeover, uh, two players leaving, one player changing to another character, I killed their three characters. They went on a mission to go to the afterlife and get their souls back so that they could come back Which to was life. conveniently a way for Blade to sidestep cannon, since there's nothing, there's very little about the afterlife in One Piece. It, it was a filler arc. Yeah, it was a filler arc. But uh, yeah, I buried the players in hell for months and months and months while I was waiting for Oda to work his way through those goddamn flashback arcs. And after we were done in hell, we went to the afterlife. 
Those puzzles actually weren't bad for the parts where I was conscious. I thought that, I, I, like I said, I feel like they were good puzzles, but one... Dear reader, do you know what a sleeper hold feels like? I do. The, uh, oh right, I forgot about Laura choking you out there. Yeah, yeah. Um, <laughs> yeah, that made that puzzle hard. <laughs> the, um... It's like, hey, Heiko, what do you think of this puzzle? I was like, I don't know, I'm spending all my threads right now on pumping blood. <laughs> I made a bunch of puzzles based on Buddhism, the 108 paths, but I, uh, And it felt like it. But I didn't, uh... I didn't reckon upon the fact that... I was thinking D&D campaign has puzzles. Oh, crap, I haven't done very many puzzles so far. Last time I tried, I drove a player out of the campaign. That was Duncan. He had no patience for that memory game at the sniping contest. No patience. So the, um... The, uh... But you like puzzles, right? Yeah, I like puzzles. You're gonna like next week's session. Yes, I love puzzles. I feel like they're an inherent part of Dungeons & Dragons, but they really didn't belong in the One Piece campaign because they do not have puzzles very often, and when they do, they almost certainly cut them in half. It's no, <clears throat> it's no JoJo. Yeah. It's barely even Hunter's Hunter. Well, the, the, the fights are frequently puzzle, puzzly type fights. Uh, on Yomiki Island, though, I did get to introduce uh, Pirate Bluebeard and the Bluebeard Pirates, and they were probably the most one piece bad guys that I hit you guys with since the... Uh, the Karate Atoll. I don't know, dear reader, if you've listened to my blog. But I put up a post recently about having players design things. Uh, generally improv. I started it with, you know, players ask about a room and we fill things in together. I also said, have the players design some NPCs. This is what Blake did. He came up with the loose idea of some NPCs, gave us some stats end of list... Just distribute them I, around the table? I, I made up little stat blocks like a monster in a monster manual, and I handed each player the monster stat block for their guy. And just said, we're going to have some scenes with these guys, as One Piece is want to do, to introduce these villains. Yeah, because I, like... Just it, play them. One of the things that was slowing us down a little bit, I felt like constraining the One Pieciness of the campaign, was that in One Piece, frequently the, the, the viewer will see the bad guys scheming or doing something, right? Uh, this is typical in fiction, but in a D and D campaign, everything tends to be from the point of view of the heroes. So if the heroes aren't looking over a cliff to see the bad guys, you know, monologuing to each other, there's no way to get that kind of character development for your bad guys. And I had this epiphany. I don't remember what. I'm sure I didn't come up with it myself. Edwin Charger. I think we talked about it. Right. Well, anyway, I know you and I discussed. It. I signed each player a bad guy, and had them uh, and had them run the bad guy. I remember that. Uh, Alfred had, you know, more recently joined, and us being somewhat concerned about Alfred's role-playing capability, uh, gave him, I, I, I had assigned him the monkey, uh, and he was like, why did I get the monkey? A jetpack that ate the monkey monkey fruit. <laughs> yeah, a jetpack that could translate. It, it, that's just one of those one-piece things. It's like, why, why doesn't that joke get old? It defies aging. We've done it four, five times, and it just keeps on paying off. That monkey was a lot of fun to play, though. Zigzag. Jetpack yep. monkey. Heiko got that one. And he did charades to communicate. Because as a monkey, he could not speak. And he moved fractally. It was awesome. <laughs> Zigzag uh, had a movement of 20 squares flying uh, with the jetpack. And I decided that he would always move 20 squares, no matter what his destination was. If he had to move one square, he would go the long way around. <laughs> it would probably involve the air and at least three trees. The ability of being a jetpack that could transform into a monkey was kind of cool, though. He like he would jump onto people and grab onto their back. You know, the name of the move was "monkey on your back." Then transform into a jetpack and take off, carrying his passenger into the air. Then transform back into a monkey and let them go and have them drop. I think he managed to do this once to Tomiko, who is immune to falling. I, no, he did it to Amy too, who is immune to falling. <laughs> <laughs> you just see zigzag up in the air, like oak. Oh! <laughs> he was so tired of these. Zigzag must have come to the conclusion that female humans don't take falling damage. He didn't hang out with any before that, you know. It was all the big, uh, the big Russian or the big Swedish uh, bluebeard pirates. There was an accent we hadn't manipulated yet. Yeah, Ophelia would have been ruined. What else did they have? Slate face Uther, who was mostly generated by the photo that I wanted to use of him, uh, which I think was Casey Jones, like super intense grimdark Casey Jones. You know, this guy also already wears a hockey mask. Uh, but he was just a big Swedish guy. He was the old captain of the Bluebeard Pirates before Captain Bluebeard took them over. Um, did I also give you guys... Iggy and Spike, named after um, Bowser's kids. But in here, one of them was a woman. Yeah, they were a married couple. Somewhat older. 
Oh yeah, I remember they had the fun thing with the elephant gun. One of them fired a gun, the other would reload it between turns. Yeah. Uh, Spike would fire the elephant gun and then just uncock it and and, and hold it out to the side so Iggy could load her special ammo in it. She had like moves that were like load special ammo for weird damage. That was kind of fun. Well, it was a lot of fun uh, to look at. Mm Mm-hmm. And then every once in a while you look at Dave and go, Dave, you're playing this character. How do you feel just reloading someone else's gun every turn? And you're like, yeah, it's 11. <laughs> Which is basically the way she was. Yeah. Right. Um, we should get to Bluebeard. Yes. Well, I was saving here. him. I was saving well, him. go ahead because, and do Bluebeard. You know, and then we had Captain Bluebeard. He was a lot like Mr. Freeze visually. Yeah, I actually used a picture of Mr. Freeze from, like, uh, from DeviantArt that somebody had made. His gimmick was basically a zombie... Whose muscle control was largely electrical impulses. Yeah. So it wasn't... This is going to be real hard to do over a podcast. But imagine a guy moving like this. Octodad. Octodad's very good. Yeah, he would like flail his... Link to Octodad. Yeah. He he would flail his arms around... uh, His whole thing was that he had died but managed to like uh, defibrillate himself back to life. But was... Like halfway dead, so he was. He had this suit to keep his body from decomposing, and he was trying to get to the afterlife as well to get his soul back. Uh, but he had this really palsyish movement style, where like one of the reasons why he had the jetpack monkey was to carry him around. I remember to me one of the most visually hilarious things was the idea of Zigzag grabbing onto Bluebeard and flying him through the air with his arms just flailing ragdoll like from. Uh, you know, the constant zigging back and forth of uh, of the monkey. The only stage note Blake gave me for Bluebeard was unfailingly polite. Ah, yes. Which manifested magnificently because during everybody else's conversation at the table, I would just be on the side going, quietly going, ah, excuse me, excuse me, I'd like to, no, you know, when you're finished, no. Okay, can I, no, all right. I, I have something to, no, so, okay. <laughs> Just a constant backdrop uh, humming to the actual roleplay taking place at the table. Uh, I knew that Heiko was the man for the job. That's why I gave him Bluebeard and ended up uh, and, and, and was trying to relegate the monkey to uh, to Alfred. But it was because there were you know there were only the five of them. Mm-hmm. I like uh, Philip J. Fry ended up doing two things. The thing about that 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 inability to move is that Bluebeard could move. I mean, it's the suit that he'd built allowed him to, you know, control his body with his impulses from his brain, but it was just wildly inaccurate. So, you know, have these wide, flailing arm motions trying to fight somebody. But once he got a grip on you, then all he had to do was apply constant pressure, and he was actually super strong. So his big thing was grappling. When he finally caught you, you weren't going anywhere. He was the hydraulic man. Yeah. Um... And, uh, I want to say once he caught Jay. They <laughs> grabbed him back, and they both went, Oh no. <laughs> <laughs> Whatever I'm going to do. He had some kind of like crushing move or something, right? Probably. Yeah. Oh, right, he did, cold, da- he did, cold, he did cold damage with his like, cold yeah. body and stuff like that. The, um, there was also some cannibals on that island, <laughs> including the cannibal witch doctor chief guy, who was mm-hmm. uh, kind of working against the party, I feel like, for much of the thing. Um, because we can't have a D&D campaign without being racially insensitive at least once. Sorry. It's one <laughs> says the South Texan. <laughs> oh, fair enough. What did... What What? What was the, like... There was a soul sucking out. Oh, right. Yeah, there was the yeah, soul, the swords yeah. that suck people's souls out. Yeah, but, but the witch doctor could just walk up to you and tear your soul out. That was oh, just yeah. a thing he did. Right. Yeah. He was um, scary. Oh, Dr. Never soul. Yeah. Yeah. He tried to use the... Uh, so he tried to use the... Um, Soul tearing out move on Bluebeard, who of course had no soul, and was like, "Uh oh!" And then ended up getting killed by this uh, magic like weapon that I had had be a MacGuffin in the campaign that drains your soul out. But because he was so good at soul manipulation, Doctor Torsol was or the, the the witch doctor was able to escape, but only his soul his soul was pulled out of his body, but got sucked in from the waist down, and he was able to escape from the waist up. So after that, he was a ghost that stopped at the midsection, like running around on its hands, and we called him Doctor Torsol. Uh, when, I am exactly as stupid as One Piece canon. <laughs> Main character's name is Monkey. When they defeated Monkey Rufy, when they when they defeated uh, Bluebeard's crew and managed to like beat them in their race to get to the afterlife, uh, they ended up using some kind of soul ritual or something like that. I can't remember to uh, allow Doctor Torsol to take over Bluebeard's body, but only from the waist up. So after that. The, the the cannibal witch doctor had a new 
had a new body, you know, and 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 Bluebeard's body because he had been trying to get a, a body, a soul, so that his body could come back to life, came back to life. But the legs had a mind of their own, so as as soon as he took over, he started like wiggling his legs all around because the legs, Bluebeard's legs, were so happy that they were alive again. But uh, Doctor Torso couldn't control them, so they just like, oh, I guess I'm going this way now, as the legs would walk off sideways. After that was the underworld arc. Which was long. Yeah, I don't think we need to go into a tremendous amount of detail there. Maybe hit a couple of high points if there are. Yeah. If there are, what asshole? There was all kinds of high points. Remember the shame ogre? The shame shame ogre was a super high point. For, did you come up with it while you were high? The shame ogre was outstanding. Shame ogre came up in my campaign recently. (laughs) It's a meme now. Just something popped up and said, you can't hide from your shame. (laughs) And the party animal companion went, oh no, not you again. (laughs) (laughs) Um, I based this afterlife on Dante's Inferno. I knew that they would need to go through different, like, circles of hell. But about as true to Dante's Inferno as the video game Dante's Inferno. Well, I mean... Loosely inspired by. Yeah. Yeah. Because in One Piece, you travel from island to island. So the afterlife was an ocean. And each circle of hell is indeed each level of purgatory and each circle of heaven was a different island. And you needed a ship. They weren't able to bring their ship into the afterlife with them, so at first they commandeered Charon's boat, which Charon had super low amount of appreciation for. Well, um, we commandeered Charon. Right. Yes. Yeah, that's what we said. (laughs) Yeah, uh, Ophelia ended up devouring the boatman whole, which uh, gave her psychic command of his undead crew and... uh, Just like with accountants. And his undead ship. That's how that works, right? If you beat them in a game of riddles, you gain their power. Uh, oh, one of the funny things about the afterlife was everything was made out of souls. So what happened was, if your soul was sufficiently, like, weak, some stronger soul, or perhaps some tormentor of the afterlife, like a devil or an ogre, would uh, walk over and compact you into a brick and use you to build, like, a house. Uh, and that was, I feel like, a source of some comedy, where, like, all the bricks were people, and then, you know, you'd be like, Hey, I can turn a brick back into a person, and be like, Oh, did I go somewhere? <laughs> or if you got really sick of somebody, be like, Come here, you asshole, I'm gonna make you into a brick. The, uh, There's a whole lot of what is the trope associated with like the unfortunate, not unfortunate implications, but and I must scream. There was a lot of that too. The there were, a lot of the metaphysics of the afterlife are truly disturbing. You did a really good job. It's the that. afterlife. Yeah. yeah, they got to fight. Oh yes, they got to meet um, King Minos, the Minotaur King. There were four kinds of things in the afterlife besides dead guys: devils, ogres, because it was a Japanese afterlife after all. Uh... Angels, because it was somehow a Christian afterlife as well. This all works together in one piece. I'm not making this up. And, of course, Minotaurs, because, you know... Because why not throw in um, Hellenic pantheism? I feel like there needed to be four things in, you know... Four means death. Yeah, exactly. Uh, And also, it was based on Dante's Inferno, so there was going to be a Minotaur or two. King Minos, king of the Minotaurs, was uh, voiced by uh, Dragon Ball Z abridged guru... I had a lot of fun when he said, that's the true source of righteousness is righteousness, and challenged the party to a battle where all eight, did we have eight or ten at the time? Eight characters got to fight this one level 30 solo at the same time. What level 21. You were level 21? Yeah. That was intense. It was not easy for them, but they did manage to pull it off. Afterwards, he was like, well, okay, I guess you're more righteous than me. You can just take command of the Palace of Minos, giant floating mobile oppression palace. Of the afterlife. That's a later story. Yeah. Um, they met... Uh, oh, right. Devils. I named the devils after body parts. So, like, there was a shoulder devil. The go- The joke being from, like, cartoons when you've got an angel on one shoulder and a devil on the other shoulder. Shoulder devils would just become invisible and perch on your shoulder and give you bad advice. Or, um... They were a good add to other fights because they could mess with your characters. Ah. Lip devils. Right. Were mind flayers. Yeah, and because chin, their lips were tentacles. And chin devils, because you had all those barbazoo minis that I wanted to use. Is that the right type? Which is as good a reason as any. Yeah. Um, That's why you guys were about to fight a whole bunch of woodwoods last night. Yeah, I, I kind of put two and two together with that. I was like, oh, the woodwoods are totally coming out for this. What did your like your mom gave you nine woodwoods or something like that? No, no you got it, them yourself. It was real popular. It was a common during a time when I was getting a bunch of things. Oh, so you just opened them all? Yes. Oh, wow. Not like Rust Monsters. 
Those were gifted. Yeah. Who wants Rust Monsters? More importantly, who wants to give their players ten Rust Monsters and have a publicly findable address? <laughs> the, um... <clears throat> And then there were the hand devils, which were the ethereal filters. A lot of the devils were driven by miniature usage because, you know, the One Piece campaign being full of humans just really didn't leverage all those beautiful D&D minis we had very The often. skin devils weren't. That's true. That, that was actually a World of Warcraft succubus, I think. Yeah, the skin devils showed off a lot of skin. Yeah. Um, the big scary ones were spine devils. Yeah. Because spine... They were all named after a body part, but these guys were also, you know, their skin was spiny. It was easy to find spiny devil pictures on the internet That's for true. the for the program. And you really only did have, like, the two, or the two things that passed for spine devils, but it worked out. Um, I don't know, I feel like the spine devils were kind of cool. I well, feel they like were they, terrifying. I feel like they were well received. They, they actually were terrifying. Rioted. Do you want to talk about the two mechanics that came in? The, the Ashley Riot mechanic and the, uh, the companion character mechanic? We'll discuss Ashley Riot... At the Delve, Delve Night session. Yeah. What Tune about, in, Bat Reader? Companion. Do you mean like the companion the, the, character thing we did when somebody was missing? No, or? the, the uh, other one. Oh, right. Yeah, we I think that's that. probably the cap off. Yeah, we got about 20 minutes, so we better do that. A companion character is something that was introduced in Dungeon Master's Guide, too. The idea is that you give it to somebody who is new and wants something to ramp up. Or you use it to fill in for someone who's missing. It's a stripped-down version of a character. It has very few skills, almost no powers. Uh, it, it's more like a monster than a character in terms of the 4th edition paradigm. A monster just a list of abilities. It really is. And the idea is that it's a much lower cognitive load to run. So you can give it to someone and say, play a character and a half. But we looked at this and said, we could actually do this for various purposes because this is extensible to anything where you want half a character. This is a shonen thing. Everybody eventually splits off and fights their destined, destined opponent. Uh, sometimes you get it wrong. <laughs> Spoilers. But the, the point is that everybody had to have a one-on-one -on -one fight, but D&D isn't designed for one-on-one -on -one fights. If you do get uh, somebody who is the, an appropriate level, then they're built for a party, which means they, you need five of you. Uh, and even if there are five of you... Well, then you're all five defenders. You have no healers. You have no strikers. It's, everything's built for a balanced party. So when we decided to split up for destined battles, because we were going to do this, by God. Yeah, I mean, it was a thing that the One Piece campaign just really needed to have. We'd, we'd done it to a decent extent uh, way, way earlier in the campaign when I introduced a bunch of... Ba back when it was a five-man party, I introduced a bunch of bad guys... One of which was only, or actually two of which only popped up when the fight happened. But what we ended up doing was we had all five guys fight in the same room. And I made each monster really only solvable by the specific skills of one party member to sort of force a locking up of the appropriate player with the appropriate bad guy. But now that we had more experience, uh, more knowledge, and more, finally someone published things that we want, uh, we decided, okay, everybody you're going to split up and have a destined battle. Come up with a couple of companion characters, just nubblings that will follow you around, half characters, and we'll distribute them. For example, Blake, you're going to fight your destined opponent, a shower. So, <laughs> uh, since, you... since you are a striker, come up with a companion defender, healer, and the third guy no one cares about, controller. And we will give those to the other three players at the table, and then we will have a four-on-one fight that's actually a one-on-one -on -one fight. It was really magical the way we managed. Like we, we, we did it a bunch of different ways. So, for example, when um, Amy was doing it... Because Amy uh, was first, I think. Yeah, Amy was one of the first ones. The, um, the companion characters were just different aspects of Amy's personality... And she only had one body in the fight. Whatever player was active at the time controlled the body. Of course, Dave was controlling Amy's, you know, core personality, her fully functional 4th edition character, so his turns were the most powerful. But there was also a defender turn, a striker turn, or sorry, a defender turn, a controller turn, and a leader turn for, you know, it's like self-healing example. Uh, do you remember what they represented? Body, mind, and spirit, I think was okay. what, what I went with. Okay. Something like that, yeah. Um, for... Klesk. Klesk did the same Klesk thing. Klesk did a similar, very similar thing. It was because uh -huh. they're both Amy and Klesk are both skirmisher types, right? So it made sense to have one guy bouncing around four times per round. Um, who right. was there, there was no problem if you could took four move actions. That's your job. I yeah, um, but I'm trying to think of somebody who actually had four bodies running around. Jay, sort of. Yes, Jay and Katara were, were two really good examples. So Katara being a scion, ah, right, yeah. or being a sparkle princess. 
Um, yeah, it wasn't just three saying, illusionary copies of herself. Yeah, and the, the, that was the thing that she'd been doing all along, <laughs> making illusionary copies of herself as a defensive move. But we actually said, okay, each illusionary copy is a guy, uh, or you know, a whole a whole functional version of herself. Because the damage she's dealing is psychic anyway. So even if it's made up, the point is the real Katara is running around the room doing all this. But the bad guy sees four different Kataras that each seem to have their own way of hurting her. She was also the only one where the main died, but then we just said that the one that survived was her all along. Yeah. That was that was kind Very of Very one PC. <laughs> yeah. Um Jay had his his backup characters were even more uh abstract. They were schemes. They were things he had done around the area to prepare for the battle. One of his backup characters was the bar where the fight was happening. Yeah. The had, actual physical place where he had, say, laid traps. Yeah, he built he built various traps into the bar. Another one was the patrons of the bar, because this bar was not empty when this fight was happening. And he had, like, got a guy who owed him a favor to, you know, run up and punch the bad guy on, on that player's turn. So, on Will's turn, he would run around and go, a lot. And uh, whip people with his chains. And on someone else's turn, a bottle would fly off the shelf and club someone in the head. That, what were some of the other more interesting ones? What did uh, Ophelia... Oh, right. Ophelia had oh. tentacle masses. Yeah. She just decided, this room doesn't have enough me in it. <laughs> and sprouted three large masses of tentacles, each of which had a different job. One of them was stabby tentacles. She was the leader, so that helped. One of them was focused on just being a cushy mass for things to hit. I guess one of the neat things about it was, I feel a little bad about like uh, categorizing the players uh, in uh, a hierarchy, but you know that's how One Piece does it too. There's the there's the weaker members of the party, and they would move up to the stronger members of the party, having to fight last. Mm-hmm. So that was one of the things that we did as well, where we knew that Tomiko and Bison, who were the two kind of forerunners for being potentially the captain, uh, were going to go as the last two. But right before Tomiko, actually, I maybe we did Tom towards the beginning, didn't we? I think we yes, because he was yeah. part of the lesser half of the party. Right. Okay. But uh, Tom already had extra bodies. Tom had nine personalities and. Whenever I did stuff with them, I would form a spirit, a spirit amalgam of all these guys that would go out and do things. Well, I fought a guy whose job was wearing different hats, literally. He would put on this hat, and now he would be an accountant. He would put on this hat, and now he would be a fireman, because that's how hats work. And he decided, okay, let's punch the personalities straight out of you. And he just wound up, did a power, and knocked all of them out of me. And then there were ten versions of me on that field, at which point the guy went, this didn't go as planned. Uh, did we give... Uh, Each of us got one, yeah. but they rotated. Yeah. Each of you got one. He sucked the other six, six back into the spirit amalgam. So there was the spirit amalgam running around. Tom's Tom running body, around. And, and three, three of the other ones. orphaned spirits running around when, doing their own thing. I think thing. when Heiko used a power that would use one of the powers of one of the outstanding guys... It, everyone rotated. Yeah, that su- that guy got sucked into the spirit amalgam, and a random one got spat out. Again, you could use a d6 for this. All of the powers were... Um, color-coded, because they did things based on the personality. So I said, I need to use the orange thing now. Who's orange? Dave is? No, you're not. Give me orange. I'm using that power, and you get uh, your pink now. Yeah. That was a really, really cool fight. And we all tried to role-play the personalities of the characters that we got. I thought we did a pretty good job of that. That One one word, um, not even elevator pitch. This one was a pass-on-the-stairs pitch for what was the personality you're going to be. Unfortunately, the rapid-fire delivery character... Uh-huh. The word I used for that was distraction. Uh, so whenever I gave it to Will, he would just stare off into space until uh, Blake called him for the fourth or fifth time. <laughs> like I should have used a different word. Yeah, it was still funny. Right. It was really like funny. hyperactive. Yeah. Will would have gotten that right. Anyway, the uh, so then at the end, the the two last ones were uh, were Tomiko and Bison in that order mm-hmm. because Bison at the time we decided was going to go ahead and be the one that we gave the captain seat for this. He was also fighting the most powerful bad guy. Yeah. The boss of all the other bad guys, Satan himself. Anyway, the um, it was a weird campaign. Well, they were they were, they were all devils. It was the afterlife. The um, so Tomiko was actually pretty good because Tomiko's fight was multi-stage. Uh, I designed ten companion characters. Oh wait, no, more and, than that. And, and nine for Tom. Yeah. Wait, did Tomiko make ten? Yeah, three for each stage. And four for one stage. Okay. 
Right, because you companion charactered yourself yep. for the last stage. First it the, was the middle stage. running around and fighting a whole bunch of minions. Uh, I got ruined there. Yes. Then the enemy got into his mech, and I went, ah, good thing I prepared for yeah, this. Well, it was the tanks first, actually, but I think that's when he talked about getting ruined. We were just... We got rollicked. Yeah, you were you were in your tank. He was in his tank. Things got real interesting when we went to the mecha versus mecha combat. This is like Godzilla-sized mecha robot. It was really great, too, because the bad guy had been working on building this, you know, giant mecha all along. And then Tomika was like, Aha! But I have also been building a giant mecha all month. And so her giant mecha got summoned. And they had a big giant mecha punching cost, uh, contest. The between... picture was great. It was giant Nene versus robot Cthulhu. Yeah. Uh, yeah, because their bad guy was a lip devil, so he was a he was a mind flayer with the with the tentacle mouth, and uh, yeah, unfortunately uh, that that fight was should have was really cool, but just you know things didn't break nicely. And I also got rollicked. Yeah, the uh, Cthulhu robot made the mistake of devouring Tomikobot's head. Die Tomiko was the one we called it. That's where I was. Yeah, so <laughs> he devoured the he would devoured the head in the manner that a mind flayer does, which caused the pilot to be ejected into his own cockpit. Where you know, round three, she could melee. Him. <laughs> this combat ends when I want it to end, right? And then, of course, uh, Heiko had the the three different uh, person, the three different subsystems. Was it still subsystems? Nope. What did you do for that one? I had Tomiko uh, with one person playing as Tomiko's pirate personality, right? The Pink Knight. One playing as uh, Gabrielle Tomiko, um, noble, right? And one as uh, Ensign Everglade. Uh, the Marine personality. Right. I was half rogue. That was uh, a lot of fun. That, that I manipulated the system so hard for that one. Right. I disabled some filters. And last was Bison. Yeah. So Bison went a little bit weird because Bison had all along had this uh, companion character in... Um, uh, Simon. Simon, yeah. Who Simon was actually just a power. Of, of Bison's. Yep. He was a reskin of a power, right? He was basically Oliver Twist. Yeah. He was a little British orphan. Will really enjoyed doing his British boy accent and he always called everyone sir. I promised it's better than Blix. It was? It would have to be. Okay, well, anyway... My um, cats have a better British accent than you do. Right. Uh, so what happened at the beginning was Bison went in to fight Satan the Devil and immediately got, like, picked up uh, a backbreakered and thrown into a pool of super kill you acid. Like, not just regular acid, super kill you acid. Like flaming lava spike acid of poison death. Yeah, Mega Man Fun. is used to this kind of thing. Mario is used to this kind of thing. Sonic is not. So the, um... Uh... At that point, it was like, oh no, what has happened? And at that, at that moment, Simon came crawling out of Bison's bottomless bag... Wearing the giant mech suit that had belonged to the boss of the, actually the previous uh, everybody split up and fight a different guy arc, uh, and that mech suit had three subsystems, not unlike uh, Tomiko's mech. Uh, there was a dynamo. There was a coolant system. Yeah, because it had cold damage, uh, fire, fire damage, and lightning area. damage. Yeah, flamethrower, dynamo, and coolant system. That was interesting because Simon was there to soften up the bad guy. Before Bison showed up. Right. The the issue was that Simon was really, really good. Things broke for him. I, in particular, played magnificently as the Dynamo. And the guy just kept spending second wins he didn't have. Uh, that guy was on his sixth healing surge by the time Simon finally fell and Bison rejoined the fight, going, Okay, now it's time for... You're dead! <laughs> Please revive. <laughs> I, I remember we ended up kind of uh, canceling Simon by caveat, yeah, uh, so that we could have the Bison part of the fight. And then when Bison rejoined, what were his companions? Freaking wacky. That's what they were. Legs. Was everybody a leg? They might have all been legs. At that point, we even played with initiative. Yeah, like I would only get a turn. Right. As a free action after a successful attack. I think you were the by Destiny, weren't you? Or something like primary that? No. Yes. It, was, it was the juggling. Yeah, one of them was. One of you was specifically for juggling. Where, like, after a move was delivered, you got an interrupt turn to, like, do juggling moves as you kicked him into the air or punched him into the air or whatever. Where that got most interesting was the domination power that the bad guy had. At one point, he took me over. So every time Bison hit. I would then attack Bison. 
with ten attacks. Each of which could knock him unconscious, dealing 30 damage to me. Oh yeah, that was the other thing. I think that eventually ended when I... When he knocked his legs unconscious. And had to revive them. (laughs) (laughs) It was uh, was definitely pretty wacky. I remember that was was one of the things we had. It was a fantastic One Piece final fight. Yeah, the the damage distribution was a thing. Because every time there was a body sharing fight, you actually, like... Basically the damage was who wants it. When damage was coming in, one of the one of the parts would say, "I volunteer to take this damage," which was usually the defender until it was almost dead, and then the other ones would start taking damage. I might as super hard in the Tomiko one. Yeah, where I immediately got bloodied, which tripled my damage, and then let everybody else take damage for me. Yeah, that was very good. That was that was pretty cool. So it's about to be seven o'clock. Are there any other uh, good ones that we missed from that game? No, I mean. We no, that was every good story. There was a did I did I have you guys fight a giant enemy crab followed by a bigger giant enemy crab? Yes. yes. And the whole See story what? is therefore therefore revealed. Yeah, I mean it was one of those things where there were a lot of really epic fights mm-hmm. uh, as there are. I think one of the things that came out of this was that we we we, we between Heiko and myself and maybe some other characters we sort of figured out the best way to play the character that is mechanically broken. And that especially in this type of campaign it's like yes, Tomoko can drop 200 damage in a round. Because she's a true badass, she doesn't. Yeah. Unless she has to. Unless someone's going to hurt one of her friends. And every single time, before I do it, I knock someone prone and point at them and say, hey, cut it out. (laughs) Yeah. One of the many character tropes I've taken from Freakazoid. Fun and Games has moved to the University Mall. Yes. We know. We're right here. I'm telling the viewers. I mean, the listeners. (laughs) Shut up. This is a thing that I do, too, I realized just now. And I was like, yes, and some healing. I held my arm out sideways and, like, waved my hand in a dismissive way. Like, shut up, honey, I'm doing a podcast right now. I don't have time for your woman problems. Oh, jeez. This hat is round and my head is not. (laughs) No angle fits. Also, it's stuck in my hair. Like, why does this smell like someone else has touched it? I, like a mother bird, can smell when someone has molested my hat. This podcast is fully copyrighted by its hosts. Visit us at podcastmagicmissile.com. I Podcast Magic Missile, attacking the darkness since 2012. Um, let's do it to the beat. Anyway, going back to what I was saying. <laughs> <laughs>